Chapter Twenty Nine of the Sign of Silence by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Twenty Nine, The Cellar of Shawls. After much eloquent persuasion on my part, and much straight talking on the part of the spectacled family doctor, and of Mrs. Shan, Frida at last, towards the last days of June, allowed us to take her to Dinard where at the Hotel Royal we spent three pleasant weeks, making many automobile excursions to Trouville, to Dinan, and other places in the neighborhood. The season had scarcely commenced, nevertheless the weather was perfect, and gradually I had the satisfaction of seeing the color return to the soft cheeks of my well-beloved. Before leaving London I had of course seen Edwards, and knowing that watch was being kept upon her, I accepted the responsibility of reporting daily upon my love's movements, she being still under suspicion. I ought not to do this, Mr. Royal, he had said, but the circumstances are so unusual that I feel I may stretch a point in the young lady's favor without neglecting my duty. And after all, he added, we have no direct evidence, at least not sufficiently, to justify an arrest. Why doesn't that woman Petrie come forward and boldly make her statement personally? I had inquired. Well, she may know that you are still alive, he laughed, and if so, she's afraid to go further. I questioned him regarding his inquiries concerning the actual identity of Marie Brock, but he only raised his eyebrows and replied, My dear Mr. Royal, I know nothing more than you do. They no doubt possess some information in Brussels, but they are careful to keep it there. And so I had accompanied Frida and her mother hoping that the change of air and scenery might cause her to forget the shadow of guilt which now seemed to rest upon her, and to crush all life and hope from her young heart. Tiring of Dinar, Mrs. Shan hired a big grey touring-car, and together we went first through Brittany, then to Vannes, Non, and up to Tours. afterwards visiting the famous chateau of Turin, Amboise-Loche, and the rest, the weather being warm and delightful, and the journey one of the pleasantest and most picturesque in Europe. When July came, Frida greatly improved in both health and spirits. Yet was it only pretense? Did she in the lonely watches of the night still suffer that mental torture which I knew, alas, she had suffered, for her own deep-set eyes and pale sunken cheeks had revealed to me the truth? Each time I sat down and wrote that confidential note to Edwards, I hated myself that I was set to spy upon the woman I loved with all my heart and soul. Would the truth never be told? Would the mystery of that tragic January night in South Kensington never be elucidated? One evening, in the busy but pleasant town of two, Mrs. Shan having complained of headache after a long all-day excursion in the car, Frida and I sauntered out after dinner, and after a brief walk sat down outside one of those big cafés where the tables are placed out beneath the leafy chestnut trees of the boulevard. The night was hot and stifling, and as we sat there chatting over our coffee amid a crowd of people enjoying the air after the heat of the day, our dark-faced, narrow-eyed Oriental in a fez with a number of Oriental rugs and cheap shawls came and stood before us in the manner of those itinerant vendors who haunt continental cafés. He said nothing, but standing like a bronze statue, he looked hard at me and pointed solemnly at a quantity of lace which he held in his left hand. "'No, I want nothing,' I replied in French, shaking my head. "'Very cheap, sir,' 
he exclaimed in broken English at last. "'You no buy for lady?' And he showed his white teeth with a pleasant grin. I again replied in the negative, perhaps a little impatiently, when suddenly Frida whispered to me, "'Why, we saw this same man at Dinar, and in another place. I forget where. He haunts us.' "'These men go from town to town,' I explained. "'They make a complete round of France.' Then I suddenly recollected that the man's face was familiar. I had seen him outside the Piccadilly tube-station on the night of my tryst with Mrs. Petrie. "'Yes, lady,' exclaimed the man who had overheard Frida's words. "'I see you, Denard, Hotel Royal, eh?' he said with a smile. "'Will you buy my lace? Silk lace, very cheap.' "'I know it's cheap,' I laughed, "'but we don't want it. Nevertheless, he placed it upon the little marble-topped table for our inspection, and then bending, he whispered into my ear a question. "'Mr. Royal you, eh?' "'Yes,' I said, starting. "'I want to see you to-night, alone. Say nothing to lady till I see you. Outside your hotel, eleven o'clock, sir, eh?' I sat staring at him in blank surprise, but in a low voice I consented. Then, very cleverly, he asked in his normal voice, looking at me with big narrow eyes with dark brows meeting. "'You no buy at that price, eh? Ah!' And he sighed as he gathered up his wares. "'Cheap, lady, very good and cheap.' And bowing, he slung them upon the heavy pile already on his shoulder, and stalked away. "'What did he say?' Frida asked when he had gone. "'Oh, only wanted me to buy the lot for five francs,' I replied, for he had enjoined secrecy, and I knew not but he might be an emissary of Fremy or of Edwards. Therefore I deemed it best for the time to evade her question. Still, both excited and puzzled, I eagerly kept the appointment. When I emerged from the hotel on the stroke of eleven, I saw the man without his pile of merchandise standing in the shadow beneath the tree on the opposite side of the boulevard, awaiting me. Quickly I crossed to him and asked, "'Well, what do you want with me?' "'Ah, Mr. Royal, I have watched you and the young lady a long time. You travel so quickly, and I go by train from town to town, slowly.' "'Yes, but why?' I asked, as we strolled together under the trees. "'I want to tell you something, mister. I know Arab. I Sinos, from Huacho.' "'From Huacho?' I gasped quickly. "'Yes, my dead master he English, Sir Digby Kemsley.' "'Sir Digby?' I cried. "'And you were his servant? You knew this man and came?' Why, you were the man who heard your master curse the man who placed the deadly reptile against his face. You made a statement to the police, did you not? I asked frantically. Yes, Mr. Royal, I did. I know a lot, he replied in his slow way, stalking along in the short breeches, red velvet jacket, and fez of an Oriental. You will tell me, Sinos, I said. You will tell me everything, I urged. Tell me all you know. He grinned in triumph, saying, I know a lot. I know all. Cain killed my master, killed him with the snake, he and Lewis together. I know, I saw. But the Englishman is always great and his word believed by the commissary of police, not the word of Sinos. Oh, no, but I have followed, I have watched. I have been beside Cain night and day when he never dream I was near. I tell the young lady all the truth, and, ah, she tell him after I beg her to be silent. But where is Cain now? I asked eagerly. Do you know? The red Englishman, he with Madame Petrie and Louis, he called himself Ali the Indian. Where can you take me to them? I asked. You know there is a warrant out for their arrest. I know, but. But what? I cried. No, not yet. I wait, he laughed. I know everything. 
he kill my master i kill him my master be very good master yes i know he was i said that man came very bad man your poor young lady ah she not know me i know her you know say you see me eh i tell everything later you go austin i meet you then we see them at austin i cried are they there you go austin to-morrow tell me your hotel sinos come eh sinos see them with you oh oh he said in his quaint way grinning from ear to ear i looked at the curious figure beside me he was the actual man who had heard the dying cries of sir digby kemsley but tell me i urged have you been in london do you know that a young lady died in kane's apartment was killed there sinos knows he laughed grimly sinos has not left him ah no he killed my master i never leave him till i crush him never that you know of what occurred at harrington gardens i repeated yes sinos know he tell in austin when we meet he replied you go to-morrow eh and he looked at me anxiously with those dark rather bloodshot eyes of his i will go to-morrow i answered without hesitation and taking out my wallet i gave him three notes of a hundred francs each saying this will pay for your fare i will go straight to the grand hotel on a dig you will meet me there and the lady eh she must be there too yes miss shand will be with me i said good sir very good he replied thrusting the notes into the inner pocket of his red velvet jacket i get other clothes these only to sell things and he smiled i tried to induce him to tell me more but he refused saying at ostend sinos show you he tell you all he know he tell the truth about the red englishman and presently after he had refused the drink i offered him the peruvian who was earning his living as an arab of north africa bowed with politeness and left me saying i meet you mr royal at grand hotel in ostend but be careful neither of you seen they are sharp clever alert oh very we leave to-morrow eh good and a moment later the quaint figure was lost in the darkness an hour later though past midnight i dispatched two long telegrams one to fremy in brussels and the other to edwards in london then two days later by dint of an excuse that i had urgent business in ostend i found myself with frida and mrs shand duly installed in rooms overlooking the long sunny deeg one of the finest sea promenades in europe ostend had begun her season the racing season had commenced and all the hotels had put on coats of new white paint and opened their doors while in the huge kursaal they played childish games of chance now that m marquet was no longer king yet the magnificent orchestra was worth a journey to listen to on the afternoon of our arrival all was gay and bright outside the blue sea the crowd of well-dressed promenaders and the golden sands where the bathing was so merry and so chic but i had no eyes for the beauties or gaiety of the place i sat closeted in my room with two friends fremy and edwards whom i introduced and who quickly fraternized a long explanatory letter i had written to brussels had reached fremy before his departure from the capital excellent he was saying his round clean-shaven face beaming this peruvian evidently knows where they are and like all natives wants to make a coup d'etat i've brought two reliable men with me from brussels and we ought if they are really here to make a good capture miss shan knows nothing you say edwards remarked seated on the edge of my bed now this man seen us was very decided upon the point 
"'He has reasons, no doubt,' remarked the detective. "'It's just four o'clock,' I remarked. "'He has given me a rendezvous at the Café de la Régence, a little place at the corner of the Place d'Anne. I went round to find it as soon as I arrived. We're due there in a quarter of an hour.' "'Then let us go, messieurs,' Fremy suggested. "'And what about Miss Shand?' I asked. The two detectives held a brief discussion. Then Edwards, addressing me, said, "'I really think that she ought to be present, Mr. Royal. Would you bring her? Prepare her for a scene, as there no doubt will be, and then follow us.' "'But Spinos will not speak without I am present,' I said. "'Then go along to Miss Shand, give her my official compliments, and ask her to accompany us upon our expedition,' he replied. And upon his suggestion I at once acted. Truly those moments were breathless and exciting. I could hear my own heartbeat as I went along the hotel corridor to knock at the door of her room. End of chapter 29. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's audiobooks.com.